Well, good morning. If you have a, a Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. John, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and an eyewitness, actually, of the things of which he writes here, writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Would you uh, pray with me briefly? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's good to be here with you. Chris gave a little bit of an introduction to me, or, or about me, for me, to you. I'll get the prepositions here in, in a second, I think. Um, but as I stand here now, I, I, I feel like I probably should make some sort of confession to you because you're probably putting two and two together. So I was at the church. I actually live right next door to the church, right there in the heart of Southeast Portland, the, the, the heart of, of Keep Portland Weird, the, the, the heart of, of, of Hipsterville. It's, it's the place, as Portlandia taught us, where young people go to retire. And... Um, and so my confession to you now, and it's probably obvious as you look at me, I'm, I'm really not a hipster. I'm, I'm not at all. Now, you, if, if you're uninitiated to this, you, you might have thought, well, well, don't you live in Portland? I, I thought everybody who lives in Portland is a hipster. Well, I'm here to tell you, no, that's, that's not the case. Some might even protest, but you, we know you live in Southeast Portland. That's the, the, that's the heart of Hipsterville. And, and it's true that, that while I live in the heart of Hipsterville, uh, I'm, I'm not really a, a hipster. And, and that's my confession to you. My, my confession really more starkly is this. I, I'm really, when it comes to being hip and cool, I'm a fraud. I am a pretender, a, a squatter, if you will. I, I, I live with this constant anxiety that at some point the cool police, who are far more active than the actual police in Portland, are, are, are going to come and, 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 and knock on my door and, and say to me, uh, hey, Todd, we just figured out you don't belong here. And, and I'll have to just say, you're right. Thanks, thanks for letting me live here as, as long as you did. I, 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 have, I have no plea. I am guilty as charged. Now, if, if you are part of the initiate, if you know what you're looking for, then, then, then you'll know that, of course, I'm not a hipster, right? I don't bear the marks of being a hipster at all. I, I, I really am not a fan of beer. I, I loathe coffee. I have no desire to get on a bike or a skateboard ever again. Um, but, 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 but behavior is only part. It's only partly important when you're looking for a hipster. You really have to look the part. You have to bear the marks of a hipster. And, and, and so, for example, I'm absolutely incapable of growing a beard. This is like three or four days growth for me. My, the, the only body piercings that I have are the holes in my feet from stepping on my kids' Legos every single morning. 
I, 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 have, I have no artwork at all on me at all. The, the, on, the only ink I have on my body is the self-delivered part on my fingers. Um, and, and when it comes to like getting tatted up, I, I can't think of an inscription that I want on my body for like the next 30 minutes, let alone for the rest of my life. And even if I were to come up with such a message, I mean, look at me, look at the size of my arms. It would have to be an abbreviated memo at best, right? So, so, so yeah, I, I, I don't bear any of the marks. I bear none of the marks of authentic hipster. Now, I, I, I could get up and just tell you that, that I'm hipster, but, but, but I'd be lying. Self-attestation is important, but it only gets you so far. You have to look the part, you have to play the part. And in, in our fickle world where beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it's really difficult. As, as we all know, it's, it, here's the difficult part. It's, it's difficult to meet expectations of people really difficult to do that. It's, and it's nearly impossible to meet others' expectations of you when the stakes are high. But what about when the stakes are high and people don't actually know what they want or need? Then it's like nigh on impossible. Well, imagine if you're Jesus Christ and you're stepping into the world where all of the prophets have said, this is the man who's going to reverse the fortunes of Israel. He's going to restore the kingdom. And if they would have looked even carefully, more carefully, they would have seen this is the one who's going to redeem the cosmos and make the recreation possible. Well, that's a pretty high set of expectations. Did Jesus bear the marks? Did he look the part? Well, this morning, we're going to look at two different royal entries of the Lord Jesus Christ from the Bible. And, and what we're going to find is that the people's champion, the Messiah, the Christ, he arrives on the scene in his first advent. And it was read for us by Chris earlier. And, and, and if you were paying attention during that reading, you'll know there was some high praise, but there was a lot of confusion as well. Now this morning, if you're, if you're here, maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. Here's what I would invite you to listen for. Consider the question of your greatest need. To quote the great theologian Bonnie Tyler, if you are holding out for a hero, what will that hero look like? Will you recognize him by his marks? And, and if you don't know what the hero that you're holding out for will look like, how are you going to recognize your Savior when he appears? And if you recognize that you don't know what he's going to look like, who has the authority and wisdom to bring clarity? Who might you want to listen to? For the rest of you that are here, you, you understand yourself to be a Christian. The invitation is largely the same, but, but I, I would ask this. How might better understanding of both yourself and your Savior, recognizing him by his marks, how will that lead you to better service and better worship? Okay, so, so two, two different royal entries. The first one was read for us, and, and to summarize this, I would just say, I would categories it this way. Outside of heaven, praise is imperfect. Outside of heaven, praise is imperfect. So keep your finger in Revelation 5 and go back to Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19. I'm, I'm not going to reread verses 28 through 40. I want to focus more on the last part of it. 
the last part, after he gets in. Well, I'll, I'll make one comment. Wouldn't it have been just a roller coaster ride to be around Jesus all the time? Hey, why don't you go in? You're going to find a colt that's tied up. It obviously belongs to someone else. Untie it, bring it to me. And they ask the obvious question. Well, what if someone comes out and says, hey, don't take my donkey? What are we supposed to say? And, and, and he says, in, like a very Jesus-y sort of thing, tell him that your Lord needs it. Okay. <laughs> and so off they go, they untie the donkey. Sure enough, hey, what are you doing? Get your hands off my donkey. The Lord needs it? Oh, okay, take it. Go ahead. It's like, wow, that was cool. It actually worked, right? So th- this is just what life with Jesus is like. Okay, so, but, but then life with Jesus gets even stranger. As they're, they're going down the, uh, the, the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, and they're going to head up towards the Temple Mount, and there's all this great praise that's going on. We see that in verses 37 and 38. And it's the disciples who are behind this action. The, the, the multitudes of disciples, lots of disciples are there, followers of Jesus. They're praising God for all the mighty works that they had seen. You might, well, what kind of mighty works have they seen? Well, if they had been paying attention to Jesus' ministry, it was just one steady stream of awesome works. And these works demonstrated both Jesus' right to be king of the kingdom and had also brought a foretaste of the kingdom. Word and deed with Jesus, they always integrate beautifully, don't they? No inconsistency at all. His actions proclaimed. His words demonstrated, right? Both of those together in, in, in ways that I think we're, the world needs to see again, probably needs to see from us. Word and deed, word and deed, consistent. And that's what they got in Jesus. Well, what did it look like? Well, it was jaw-dropping awesome. The lame walked. The dead were raised. The sick were healed. The demonized were exercised. The hungry were fed. And the poor had good news preached to them. Now, of course, that's exactly what all the Old Testament prophets would, had said that the Messiah would do when he showed up. And Jesus had, from start to finish, demonstrated his kingly worth. He had done the exact things prophesied or anticipated or predicted of the Messiah. In verse 38, there's this praise of of Jesus. It, it, It indicated that Jesus should have been welcomed by the people as a leader, an, an agent of God. And of course, Jesus was more than just an agent of God. He was the king, the king that the people of Israel had been waiting for. Peace and joy are proclaimed at the, the royal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, just like at his birth, where peace and joy were proclaimed. And that, that, that it, it almost kind of bookends the, the life of Jesus, demonstrating that from start to finish, Jesus' ministry had been ordained by God, and it was a good thing. And so for the people of Israel, when, when, when they heard this, those who were in attendance were watching this, they should have recognized the king is here, and that's good. This is the guy we've been waiting for. It's the one we've been waiting for. But as, you, as, as we read through that passage, you might have noticed that this excitement about Jesus, it wasn't really unanimous, was it? The Pharisees are there, and they are clearly concerned about the messianic confession that the disciples are proclaiming as this itinerant preacher rides this donkey down into the valley to ascend up to the Temple Mount. 
And they wanted to quell the fervor. And it's not clear exactly why they wanted to do this. Maybe they thought the praise was inappropriate. Maybe they thought it was blasphemous. Maybe they thought it was just politically unwise. We don't need someone rocking the boat. Things are a powder keg in Jerusalem anyway between the Romans and the Jews. But for whatever reason, for whatever disbelieving reason, they order the praise stopped. They say to Jesus, tell your disciples to stop it. They want the disciples of Jesus rebuked. Jesus' response is remarkable, isn't it? No, he's not going to do that. The disciples praise of him. It's entirely right and proper. In fact, he says the disciples are compelled to praise. In fact, if they weren't going to praise, this moment is so enormous that even the rocks would begin to take up the anthem. Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees here is clear. Even the inanimate creation can recognize the king of the world, the king of Israel when he shows up. Why can't the king's people, why can't you? He seems to be saying to the Pharisees. Why not indeed? I think probably most of you know the rest of the story. Within one week, the king's people would have their way. They reject Jesus as Messiah. They have him crucified on a Roman cross. Creation might have been able to recognize her savior, but neither the Roman Empire, the power brokers of the age, nor Israel, the people primed to receive her as king, recognized Jesus. And we have to ask, what on earth went wrong? Why the confusion? Why the rejection? The cruel maliciousness against this itinerant preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. We look back on it now and, it, and it's just kind of cringy to read about, isn't it? Because, because even in our world, who, who doesn't really like the church and they don't like Christians, it's still not legit to badmouth Jesus. I mean, that's not going to get you very far. Jesus, in the estimation of the, of the world, is probably the greatest man who ever lived, Why would this happen to someone like him who came preaching peace? Why? And then we have to ask, what about that kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming all this time? Were the Old Testament prophets wrong? Would judgment not ever come upon the enemies of God? Would God's people not ever be vindicated? Would creation not be renewed? And then consider Jesus himself at this point in time. He didn't look the part of savior of the world, the Messiah, the king. In fact, his only royal regalia was a cruel joke, a crown of thorns. To make matters worse, now Jesus bears forever the ignoble marks of crucifixion. The holes in his hands and his feet and his side, they bear testimony to that rejection. These aren't royal marks. They're not the marks of a king. They're the marks of a common criminal. The marks of shame and embarrassment. Or so the world might think. What kind of king is Jesus anyway? That's the question that we're presented with. And I think to answer that question, we have to go 
to Revelation chapter 5? To answer that question, we have to go to Revelation chapter 5. Of course, you can't really go to Revelation 5 unless you go to Revelation 4 first. So eventually we'll get to the primary text of this sermon, I promise you. To make sense of what kind of king Jesus is, we're going to look at another triumphal entry. But we're going to start in chapter 4 because that sets the stage for chapter 5. And what we find in chapter, Revelation chapter 4 is that in heaven, God is praised perfectly. On earth, on earth, praise is imperfect, but in heaven, praise is always perfect. And I'm, I'm not going to read Revelation chapter 4 to you. I'll just kind of summarize what's there to set the stage. In verses 1 and 2, John is issued into the throne room of God. God is seated on the throne, signifying rule and judgment the throne does there. In verses 3 through 5, we get some description of what John sees. And, and you get the sense as John is trying to describe what he sees, he's just hanging on by his fingernails. He doesn't even know what to call these things. So he, he resorts to figures of speech. He says, and I saw a being that was kind of like this. And then, and then I saw this other thing. It was kind of like that, right? He, it's, it's just awesome though. We have this picture of God, the Holy Spirit, all sorts of dazzling jewels. There are 24 elders, at least that's what John calls them. They're seated on 24 thrones surrounding the throne of God. And, and, and there's some debate about what these beings are. Who are these elders? Are are they angels? Is it people who represent humanity? I don't know. But they're remarkable beings who surround the throne of God. There's there's also reference to the seven spirits of God in Revelation chapter 4. I think that's a reference to the Holy Spirit who resides before the throne of God continually because he is God. And then it gets weirder yet. There's these four strange beings who are covered in wings and eyes. And so you might say, oh good, a theology professor from a, from a seminary is here to tell us exactly what these beings are. So here's, here's what I know. Three most important words in theology. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who these beings are, but I know that they're awesome and I, and, I, and, and I know that they keep unending and uncompromising vigil over the created world. I suspect that's what the eyes represent. They see everything. They see everything. But as, as bizarre as these strange looking beings are, our focus then through John is drawn not to what they look like, but to what they see, or what they say. Because in un ending praise. They proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they are joined by those 24 elders who cast their crowns before the throne of God. And they proclaim, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. In heaven, God is praised perfectly. These are creatures who have been created to praise God. So I think we probably should pay attention to them. We'll pause just for a second and consider the nature of praise in heaven. God is praised here for who he is, his character and his essence, as well as his role of creator. So if you're ever wondering, I don't know what to praise God for or or how to do that, just think about who God is and think about who he is as creator. That's what they do in heaven, apparently. God, we're told here, is the eternal self-existent one. He's the one who always has been, he is right now, and he always will be. What this tells us is that God is self-existent. He is independent, and he is eternally so. 
Now, this is a little hard for us to wrap our minds around because one of the implications of that, God being independent, is he really doesn't need you or me. And we might think, well, what do you mean God doesn't need me? I I think I kind of want God to need me because I want to feel necessary. But but then if you stop and think about it, it's like, really? Do, Do you really want God to need you? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because if God needed you, then his response to you would be contingent upon whether or not you're meeting some need in his that he would otherwise lack. And, and that might make us feel self-important until we think about the implications of that for a second. It's like, well, I, I don't want God's response to me to be contingent on me meeting a divine need. I, can't, I, I can barely get my kids dressed into church on time. How am I supposed to take care of God? And, and, and then we think about it a little deeper and we go, oh, the unconditional love of God for us, that, is, that hinges entirely upon his eternality and his independence. God is able to love you unconditionally precisely because he's not dependent on you in any way for anything. And that's really a happy thought. God's also praised here for being the creator. And Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and we're, we're told something in that very first verse of the Bible, that there's two kinds of things that exist. There's God and there's stuff that he made. And if you're something that God made, then you're not God. And if you're God, then you're not something that was made. In theology, we call that the creator-creature distinction. In short form, it's this. God is God and you are not. And that comes right to us in verse 1 of the Bible. And we might think, well, that's really obvious, isn't it? Well, no, not really. Not if you visit my neighborhood and walk down the street and talk to folk. They get this creator-creature distinction mixed up all the time. And it's been a common problem of humanity ever since Genesis 3 to mix up God is God and I am not. All right, that was just a a brief aside. What's of supreme importance to consider here before moving to chapter 5? Here's the setup for chapter 5, which is our main text, which we haven't even read yet. God is on his throne And he is being praised by creatures who were created to praise. And everything is exactly as it ought to be. If there's one place that exists where everything is going exactly right, that couldn't possibly be better, wouldn't you have to say throne room of God, where God is praised for who he is perfectly. And I would say you're right until we get to chapter 5. And what we find out here is that in heaven, only the perfect are praised. And in verses 1 through 4, we're told this, heaven, we have a problem. We have a problem. Look at at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5. Then I saw, that's John writing, I saw in the right hand of him, who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel. I like that, strong angel. What, in contrast to all the wimpy angels that are there too? I don't think so. Anyway, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it And I began to weep loudly, like literally to wail because no one 
was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. There's, there's lament at the throne of God. What's going on? Well, we would have to ask, well, what, what is the scroll? Why is it so important? If we were to keep reading into chapter 6 we would, and following, we'd find that the scroll contains God's redemptive plan, the future history for God's creation. The scroll contains the plan for the balancing of the scales of justice, the vindication of God's people, the judgment on the wicked. Think of it this way. Contained in the scroll is God's definitive, divine answer to the question, how long, O Lord? How long will the wicked prosper? How long will the righteous suffer? The definitive, divine answer to everything that is wrong with the world, it's there in the scrolls. The definitive, divine answer to everyone who has ever thought God, why aren't you paying attention? Aren't you keeping score? Why don't you care? For all of you who have experienced tragedy or abuse or injustice, and, and you've cried out to the Lord wondering what is going on, why don't you see, why don't you speak, why don't you act, please know that the testimony of the Bible is that God does see He is keeping score, and he will act. He will make everything right, and his answer, his response is written in the scroll. It will take place, and when the seals are broken, that catalyzes the plan. But the problem is no one can open the scroll. No one can even look into it. They're looking for heaven's hero, if you will, but there's no one to be found. There is no one worthy to initiate the justice of God. No one is found who can initiate divine judgment. And it's not for lack of applicants or a thorough search, right? Where did they look? Everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I take it that means every place possible, including through all of time. And no one is worthy. No one who lives or has ever lived is qualified. Not one person. And it's here that we're confronted with the sobering truth. We may want for God to execute his justice, to make things right, but that justice is too white hot for us to touch. We, we might want for God to get serious about sin. Why don't you do something? But God is far more serious than we could ever imagine. We, we, we might want for God to deal with sin, finally. But of course, God's war on sin, it cuts right through the human heart. It cuts right through our heart. Not one of us is worthy to open that scroll. Not one of us dare even look into it. Not one of us is worthy to even enter God's presence on our own merit. And that's why John is so heartbroken. He he has just been given a view of the throne room of God where everything is as exactly as it ought to be. He sees God in his holiness. He has this, this, this perfect praise of the holy and sovereign Lord. He's witness to it. 
And yet when confronted with the question, God, when will you put everything to rights? When will you make it good? The answer appears to come back, well, for lack of a qualified man, never. When will you vindicate the justice, Lord, for lack of a champion, never. Now, John doesn't have some sort of naive view of the world. He, he knows the depths of injustice, the vileness of human depravity. He knows, he hopes it has to be answered by God. It must be answered by God. The, the, the hope of humanity, creation, is that God will act, but there is found no one worthy to initiate that long sought after divine action. And it's too much for John. He breaks. Says, I began to weep loudly. Again, literally, just to wail. Look at verse five. Heaven's hero is found. He does exist. Verse five. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This announcement is wonderful. The lion of Judah is here. The root of Jesse is here. Here is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The fulfillment of promises that were made to the patriarchs 1,800 years before the time of Christ. One would come from the tribe of Judah, one like a lion. One who would rule with a scepter that he would never, ever lose. We're told he's the root of David, the fulfillment of a covenant made with David 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. A member of David's line, a son, would become king and he would rule forever. That was a promise made to David. And furthermore, the angel announces that this Lion of Judah is worthy precisely because he has conquered. He is awesome. He surely bears all the marks of kingliness. Surely, when John turns around, he's going to see a hero, the kind of hero the people of Israel, even the Pharisees, were yearning for. Someone who, quite frankly, makes that peaceful, itinerant preacher from Nazareth look a little wanting. Surely here is no would-be king who would allow himself to be tripped up by Roman or Jewish interreligious political conflicts. But then in verse 6, look what happens. Who in the heavens is this? Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What on earth? (laughs) John is greeted by two surprises. He turns to see the lion of Judah and his first surprise is he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. What happened to the Lion of Judah? Turns out he is simultaneously a lamb. Not a lamb in terms of weakness or power, but in terms of sacrifice. How? What? How could this be? How could the one worthy, precisely because he had been conquered, remember that's what the strong angel said, how could he be the subject of sacrifice? 
And here we learn exactly what kind of hero was necessary to save God's people and to usher in his kingdom. The people of Israel had expected a kingdom restored to them. They had expected a political solution to their problems. They had expected judgment on the enemies of God. They had expected vindication for the people of God. And they had expected this. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. They were exactly right to expect that kind of deliverance. So, so what's, what's the disconnect? Where's the misunderstanding? What, why the confusion? They didn't understand that in order for God's judge, justice to come, in order for the creation to be renewed, for the curse to be lifted, for, for all the ruling principalities to be brought into subjection, sin had to be dealt with. More importantly, for there to be any people of God in the kingdom of God, their sin had to be dealt with. Their sin, our sin, had to be judged. Anyway, I suppose if, if we think about it, God, God could have brought about his kingdom without a cross. He could have brought about his kingdom just by you know, Jesus storming in and saying, all right, I'm king. All those who are worthy can be part of it. The problem is there, was, there would have been no one worthy to inhabit that kingdom. Not one human, save Jesus, would have been allowed into the kingdom of God. And here we see the majestic wisdom of God on display. That which lifted the curse that brought about the subjection of God's enemies is the same self-sacrificial act that brought about the redemption and ransom of people, people like you and me. And of course, that's, that's the gospel you hear proclaimed here Sunday after Sunday, that God in his kindness does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He pays the penalty of his sin. We have a God who forgives, and he forgives robustly and powerfully and completely, but that forgiveness is never free. It's costly. Now, it's free for us, but forgiveness always costs. And God bore that cost himself out of kindness and love. Jesus Christ dies in our place. He pays the penalty for our sin. And the gospel invitation, of course, is that any who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ can and will be saved. That's, that's the gospel. That's, that's why it's so important for the Lion of Judah to be a lamb, a lamb of God. Look at verses 7 and following. He, this, this lion, this lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We see here that in heaven, Jesus is praised because Jesus is God. Jesus approaches the throne and takes the scroll from the strong right hand of God. And then John gets his second surprise. The heavenly beings who had been giving praise to the one seated on the throne. Remember, like in God seated on his throne. These beings that are created to worship God. They, as it were, turn from the throne and fall down before the Lamb of God and worship 
him. And friends, I think this is the strongest argument for the deity of Jesus Christ in all of the scriptures. Now, why would I say that? In the throne room of God himself, Jesus Christ is worshiped as God. Worshiped by beings who were created to worship God. Don't we have to believe that these creatures that were created to praise God, don't we have to think that they probably have their theology of worship correct? You know, that they got it down right the way that it's supposed to be? I mean, if, if there are any beings that exist anywhere in heaven or on earth who have a correct understanding of worship, who are committed to monotheism, right? Who understand the implications of worshiping the wrong being. Don't you think it would be them? And yet in the presence of God the Father, who is seated on the throne, they fall down before the Lamb. And if Jesus Christ is not Almighty God himself, co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit, we would expect the very next verse to say, and then fire went out from the throne and consumed the 24 elders and the lamb for his blasphemous pretension. Because that's exactly what would be taking place. I mean, God is long-suffering with bogus false worship. We know that. I mean, just look around, right? Not, not in here, but out, out there, right? He's long-suffering with us here on planet Earth, but I suspect in his throne room, he's not very long-suffering with blasphemous worship. Is that, is that fair to see? Yeah, so th- that's why I think this is probably one of the strongest arguments for the deity of Jesus in all of the Bible. Application point. We've been here and we have been praising Jesus. We have praised him in song. We have praised him in prayer. And now here in this, in, in this word of God being preached, don't take worship of Jesus lightly. Don't take it lightly. When, when we sing on Sunday mornings, it is not just the precursor to the sermon, a mere formality to endure, or maybe the, you know, the, the good part before you get to the sermon, which is the part to endure. No, we, what, what, what are we doing when we sing? We are joining right now the heavenly host in participation of a transcendent and weighty activity, praise of the Lord Jesus Christ who is God forever. What we do here matters. What we do here matters precisely because of what we confess in our singing. When we praise Jesus Christ, when we grant him glory that is reserved for God alone, recognize that if Jesus Christ is not fully God, then we are committing horrific blasphemy. But if Jesus is worthy, if Jesus is divine, then our praise is just, it is right, it is orthodox, it is true, it's our duty, and it is our delight. Because it's right. It's right to do. If everything in the throne room of God is as it ought to be, then we ought to join that chorus here and now in praise of Jesus. And, 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 and let's look at what they're singing in, in heaven. Verse nine, they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, John speaking, and I heard around the throne 
and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Just a couple comments on this. We, we saw that the lion was worthy. It's announced by that strong angel, right? He's worthy because he's to take the scroll because he's conquered. But what exactly had he done? What had he conquered? Well, it turns out he's worthy. He has conquered through being slain. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross accomplished the salvation of peoples from every tribe and language and people and nation. That promise made to Abraham so long ago that all the nations would be blessed through his family in Jesus has been kept. And notice that the language, that the theology of praise there, that piling on the attributes, you are worthy of power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There's like seven things there, this fourfold deal. It, it, it makes me think of, of uh, the Lord of the Rings, which... Chris and Kate will laugh at because every sermon of mine has a hidden Lord of the Rings illusion in it. Um, but here I'll just make it obvious. I'll, I'll bring it out in the open. Um, I, I, I love the scene in the books and in the movie where little Frodo is tasked with this job of taking this ring of power and destroying it. He has to walk right into the heart of enemy territory and he's just this little hobbit. And he he's, he's basically says, I'm just this little hobbit. How am I supposed to do this? And, and Gandalf, who's guiding him through this, says, well, you must use such strength and wits as you have. And Frodo says, but I have so little of any of those things. Right? Friends, Jesus Christ maximally has all things necessary to do everything that needs to be done. And that's what he is praised for here. He has all the attributes of deity exceedingly and magnificently. So it seems to me that we should model our worship here after what we see going on in heaven. I mean, we're going to be doing it for all of eternity. Might as well get a start now, practice up a bit, right? How much of worship, like as you're driving home, do our words betray us? in thinking that maybe worship is really all about us, ab- about meeting our needs. Oh, well, what'd you, think of this? what'd you think of the songs today? What'd you think of the prayer today? What'd you think of the sermon today? Ah, it really didn't do much for me. Maybe asking each other what we thought of the singing and the prayers and the preaching. Maybe we ought to ask, I wonder what the Lord thought of our worship today. Worship in heaven focuses on who God is. God is creator, God is savior, but also God is judge. We see that here. Our worship should be like that. Theology really is the language of worship. So you might ask, so what? I'm I'm supposed to go to Western Seminary so I can learn how to worship? Yes, of course. No, no, you, you really don't have to do that. But 
but theology is important because we are saying true things about God, or we want to. That's why the pastors and leaders work so hard in crafting the worship service, teaching you to worship. So learn, go to the, I can't remember what they call the Sunday school classes here. They were told something. Um, what, uh, equipping, equipping classes. Yeah, go to that. Go to small group Bible studies, church service. Be here. Be here as often as you can. And then, then, then be cross-centered as well. Be cross-centered. You, did, did you notice in heaven what Jesus is praised for? The cross. He's praised for the cross. Worship in heaven is inescapably cross-centered. So ours probably should be too. Apparently, heaven is not able to get over the cross. They can't believe what took place. And they're not even the ones who are saved by the cross. And they still can't believe it. We should have even more awe and wonder at what Jesus did for us. Heaven is stunned at the lengths to which the Father, Son, and Spirit went to reconcile people like you and me to God. So why are we sometimes not stunned? Maybe our view of ourselves is higher than not to be. Maybe it's just embarrassing at times to think of what was necessary to save us. I, I, I get that. But, but if all that we've been given is a small salvation, it didn't take all that much to save me, then we, just, when, then we need a small Savior. But of course, Revelation 5 puts the lie to that. We don't need a small Savior. We need an awesome, mighty Savior. Great reformer Martin Luther would have none of that. He said our salvation is great because our need is so great. He demanded that people look at the cross, drive our theology of God and our theology of us from the cross. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what he's like in his holiness and his compassion and his love, look at the cross. You want to know what we're like when he gets right down to it? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. We see in the cross the mercy, the power, the holiness of God, the love of God, meeting our greatest need brought about by our sin. The cross of Jesus Christ brings laser focus to the majesty of God and it puts to death the lie that, yeah, we're really, we're really not all that bad. We're basically good. We just need a little help. Just a little help. No, we need a mighty Savior. And thankfully, that's exactly what we have. So, so, so meditate on the cross. You might have noticed in the Gospels that were written an inordinate amount of content is, is committed to the last week of Jesus' life. So read those passages over and over. Don't wait till Passion Week. Explore the cross. If Jesus' death becomes the means by which we are granted access to the throne, which he is granted the throne, then there's far more going on at the cross than just the forgiveness of sins. Jesus sovereignly rules because of the cross. The heavens will be renewed. Heavens and earth will be renewed. This place will be renewed. Why? Because of what Jesus did at the cross. And of course, Jesus intercedes for us even now because of the cross. And so, so celebrate it. As I said, so much of the Gospels are committed to retracing that last week of Jesus' life. And then the, 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 the death of Christ we call Good Friday. Why? Why do we call it Good Friday? It's like... That, that's where human evil triumphed. It was like the worst thing that has ever, ever happened. The sinless son of God put to death. I mean, I know there's all sorts of atrocities out there, but none of them compare to the death of Jesus Christ. None of them. But God had that and he handled it. So he can handle everything else. He can handle everything else. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the greatest event in all of human history. 
and they're still singing about it in heaven to this day. In fact, the only thing that could like one-up the death of Jesus was if somehow he managed to get up from the dead. Of course he did, didn't he? One way of celebrating the cross is through the Lord's Supper. That's what takes place every time you do Lord's Supper here. It's it's our way of remembering what Jesus accomplished at the cross. But you need to know that in the Lord's Supper, you're not not, uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper forever. This is just rehearsal. There's going to come a day when that Good Friday Supper, we call the Lord's Supper, that's going to give way to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And the day will come when that activity of remembrance that we do will give way to the recognition of sight. Why? Because we will see Jesus and we will recognize him by his marks. In the great hymn, Crown Him with Many Thorns, we sing this, or Crown Him with Many Crowns, sorry. We, we sing this, Crown Him the Lord of Love. Behold his hands and side. Those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. One day we will see the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns, and we will recognize him by his scars. Those scars are not the ignoble marks of a criminal we will recognize them as the marks of our hero, the marks of our great God and King, and we will bow down before him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we're, we're grateful for passages and texts such as this because it gives some clarity. Even, even in passages that are as difficult as, as in the book of Revelation, we, we see Jesus glorified. And Father, we pray that, 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 that as we consider the, the cost of our salvation, that our attention would be drawn to the greatness and wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that if, if there are any here who have not yet bent the knee to Jesus, that, that they would do so, that, that, they would, that, that you would give them eyes to see the, the glory of Jesus Christ and that they would see in Jesus, as we all ought to, the one by whom, for whom, through whom we were created, that we would see our wondrous Savior, and that we would run to him. Bless us, Father, to that end, in Jesus' name, amen.